Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Uh, I, I thought if I may, I might introduce all the panelists first and then ask them to come up together. Um, uh, Gail George, the engaging, articulate descendant who is part of the film. Uh, Lisa Ellsley, uh, the profoundly knowledgeable senior ancestry historian. I had a chance to speak to her for a moment backstage. Don't tackle her afterwards. You'll learn all sorts of things about yourself. <laughs> and then you'll want more. Uh, Melissa Collum, who is the woman who works right there, as they say on the ground, but it's really on the ground at Plymouth Church and knows um, all about it. Uh, the director of the film, Sasha Jenkins, um, who is known for the 2018 films War is Bond and Burn, Motherfucker Burn, and the... <laughs> I actually checked whether I could say that or whether it was... Burn, asterisk, it is, motherfucker. Uh, and 2015, Fresh Dressed. Uh, he's here at Sundance, in addition to this work, premiering his latest project, Wu-Tang Clan of Mikes and Men. His work, no joke, it's very cool. Did I mispronounce it? His work, I'm doing justice to my heritage. Uh, They'll never ask me again. I'm the CEO of the company. What the hell, man? Uh, his work explores race. He's quite a filmmaker. Race, culture, and what it means to be an American. And Professor Henry Skip Gates, uh, who needs no introduction, Harvard professor, historian, filmmaker, literary critic, television personality, scholar, deeply fo focused on issues of race and ancestry across a public life, his work and breath almost defies description. If we tried to cover his bio, I think we'd be out of time. <laughs> so I'll ask all of you, if I may, to come up to the stage. <clears throat> anyway. Liza, may I start with you? Um, can you talk about uh, the impact you've seen from the people who discover uh, their ancestry? You've been at it for a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ancestry is a global company that specializes in family history. We're one of the global leaders in family history with 
the ability to empower journeys of self-discovery like you saw in the film uh, with, with historical records, with family trees, and I would say almost 100% of the time that I talk to people that have made a discovery, they're, they're so excited that it's about their family, but it also gives them insight to themselves, insight to their history, and then how that history connects to everyone else. Uh, mm -hmm. Kind of gives them that grounding that maybe many are looking for. Uh, so many people think it's really difficult to do your family history. It can be difficult. It's not impossible. And I think uh, Ancestry is a great place, as we saw here, to get started on that. You had one line I, in the film when I watched it last night. You said, uh, knowing your ancestry, I, I have it right, creates empathy. Yeah. Mm. Did you mind just commenting on that? I thought it was a beautiful Sure, line. thank you. Uh, I, I really firmly believe that knowing your story and knowing the stories of others helps you find connection with others. And then that gives you empathy uh, to their plight and their story. And then by knowing that, we do actually become kinder to one another. And I, I think uh, there's a study that was done at Emory University years ago that talked about how uh, young people, if they know at a young age the story of their family history, that they're more grounded uh, as, with their confidence in themselves and feel more uh, at home and who they are, hmm. just by knowing these stories of their family. Hmm. So uh, it's been proven within you know, the academic circles as well as we see it hmm. every day on Ancestry. Um, um, Gail, what, what, um, can you tell us what it was like? Did it, it came out of the blue? Uh, you receive a letter, it says uh, either you've won a million dollars. I didn't what, get that <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm looking for it. <laughs> so so what, did you have any expectations and what was the experience like? Well, it was an amazing experience for me. I, um, right in that time frame had thought about going to Ancestry. And you know, my history, I grew up in the Washington metropolitan area, and I was just remembering in high school having an assignment to do a family tree. And mm. so I did what I could find out. And um, at that point, you know, um, we had to give presentations about where we ended up. And mm. some people, you know, they were Confederate, you know, um, descendants of Confederate generals, or they, you know, they came from overseas and they had that connection. And and I had a slave, you know. Mm -hmm. And as a teenager, it just ended there, and it was just like a, you know, it was just like there was no more to that. Mm -hmm. And it and I realized actually through this experience how um, stunting, you know, it felt for me to not have story, you know, yeah. really a story around where I come from, you know, what I descend from. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was excited, yeah. you know, about the opportunity, and I'm a risk taker and yeah. always down for a yeah. good adventure. So, <laughs> so, so, so <laughs> let's, did let's it, go. Where are we going? From your high school experience when it was mm -hmm. slave, did it change it much from this that? experience? Yeah. Absolutely, because there's context, you know, there's a story around it. It's not just, um, you know, I believe that there's a difference between uh, a slave and a captive, right? So a slave is enslaved because there was a system that was in place that put those shackles on people of color to operate and that's the way you're going to engage in the society. But a captive is in that system, but they're trying to get free. Hmm. They're trying to, they're figuring out ways, they're looking for opportunities. And so the perspective is different. Hmm. And 
And this experience kind of helped me hmm. connect that I'm descended from captives yeah, yeah, yeah. who got free. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a different nice. experience with that story for me. So. Yeah. And uh, uh, Melissa, um, can you talk a little bit about your role in the project, if I may? You're, you're sure. there, and you are the historian. So you deal with the church, I assume, in multiple different ways. <laughs> What was this one? Sure. Uh, I'm a musician at the church. You that. And, um, <laughs> and I had been singing there for about a year, and I became more and more curious about the history of the church. And it was really exciting to unravel these multiple layers and get to know this place and the people who had passed through it more and more as I dug deeper into the history. So my role now is I give tours every Sunday at 12.30 if you're in Brooklyn <laughs> um, uh, to invite people into the space to sit where Abraham Lincoln sat, to visit where uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke, to come into the basement and have a little bit of the feeling of the Underground Railroad. And this experience for me put a whole new layer hmm. into that experience because I tell these stories all the time, but there was something about hmm. having flesh and blood yeah, yeah. people that are connected to the story. Was that the first time? What Was it the first yes, time? Yes, that was the first time I've ever met anyone right? who has descended yeah. uh, from the stories I tell every week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was thrilling and moving. It, it made the history real yeah. in a way that was very, very powerful. And I think it can be hard for people to digest history. It often feels very sepia-toned, a little out of reach. Mm -hmm. But when you see it's connected to real people around us right now, uh, it's very exciting. Mm -hmm. So Sasha, may I ask, um, um, what was your experience like doing it? You've done many other films. You mentioned the show, the film. Your favorite, Burn, Burn. <laughs> <laughs> you just did a two-part, if it's four-hour thing for Showtime. But so what was this one like? And you have a particular history yourself that's pretty rich. Um, you know, I, you know I, I have a very broad background. My mom is from Haiti. My father's, you know, grew up in Philly, but we have all this, you know, ancestry in, in Virginia. My father's a filmmaker, so I'm actually a second generation filmmaker. And what sort of, sorry, because we're a film, we're a film place. So what sort of films did he do? Well, he was one of the founding producers of Sesame Street. Mm. Um, yeah. Did lots of documentaries. Yeah. And, you know, he passed away when I was really young in a film. He was a, largely a documentary filmmaker, but he made a narrative film that was funded by a, the richest black family in New Orleans. Mm. And it was lost for 35 years, and it recently has been found. It's being restored. It's called Cane River. Wow, that's um, great. It just screened at MoMA. Oh, it's wow. screened at the Smithsonian in DC. Wow. Um, so it's, it's making rounds. And, and my mom is from Haiti, and she's a painter. So I was raised by. My mom is Haitian. Sorry. My mom is from Haiti, yeah. So I was raised by people who helped me to understand that uh, culture is very important, identity is very important, <clears throat> knowing who you are and where you come from is very important. That's what my father did with his film. So I was raised to have a certain level of consciousness. So I also firmly believe, you think about we're on the eve of uh, Black History Month, and we always get this month where you're black and you can say whatever you want. But the problem is, and it's very frustrating for me, it's American history. 
And nothing is going to change until people understand, even white people, that this really ugly part of our identity as Americans is your history too, and you have to own it. And you don't own it just in February. And that is what has been so powerful about the piece. Like, you know, um, the gentleman, you know, Scott, who discovered that, you know, he yeah. was black. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the guy who said, really? Yeah. Guy? yeah. Guess what? Well, first, when I called, we had, we had a pre-interview with him over the phone. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm hunting right now. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what this guy is going to be like, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, he didn't, he learned something that he didn't know about himself, and it changed him. He had this identity as a white person. He thought, he was sweating bullets, he thought he was going to find out his ancestors were slave masters. Mm -hmm. right. He was sweating bullets all day. So to find out, well, <laughs> you know, that he is connected to these, th this church in a way that he didn't even imagine, yeah. that goes to the idea of this is American history. It's not just black history. And until we embrace that, the problems that we continue to have are going to continue to happen. Hmm. I like that. I, uh, Scott, I have good news and bad news. All good news. And he, he seemed to be having a hard time dealing with that. I'm, oh, God. Did, no, he, no. he embraced it. He, did. he was shocked. Oh, yeah. he, was, he was shocked. He, yeah, he, it took him a while to shocked. embrace it. No, he was shocked. Yeah, but. He, the film I saw, he wasn't like jumping up, joining the no. NWACP. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, he was the best part is in the, the look on his face in the basement. Oh, yeah. That, that's, the, that's the look where he's like, wow, okay, I'm black. For the same yeah. <laughs> and you know, so, Scott. Professor, oh, so sorry, please. Oh, I was just going to join in, but uh, Scott was like, uh, what am I going to tell my dad? <laughs> I said, Scott, just tell him, we black. <laughs> That's hysterical. So, uh, Professor Gates, you may be the most estimable, estimable, am I saying it right? Uh, subject matter expert uh, on all of this. I, I don't know quite where to begin except to say, what do you think of it, and what does it make you think about? Well, I do a show. We just, uh, my wife and I just came from L.A., and we just did Angelica Houston's Family Tree uh, on Friday, and two days before I did uh, Jean-Baptiste's, you know, the um, um, yeah. musical arranger yeah, yeah. for Stephen Colbert. Of um, I mean, this is what I do. Right. Finding Roots has a fabulous uh, following, and it grows every year. And, but we do celebrities. And all the time, we're trying to figure out how to, we get, I get letters almost every day from an average person, quote unquote, a real person. They go, how about, yeah. why don't you do a person like me? And so this was an experiment. Now, I didn't invent it. This is Ancestry's project. Yeah. And um, I was eager to see how, how it would work. Rather than start with a celebrity and then take them back to anonymous people, um, really the, do it the other way around. So, uh, it, and it worked brilliantly. It's so emotional to be able to imagine yourself, one of your ancestors in an historical moment would ch change the way you would have studied the Civil War, the American Revolution, the Spanish-American War. I always ask our guests that. And it takes four hours to do a shoot, and we use 20 minutes, right? Yeah. Maybe 30 minutes. But I always say, would it have affected your sense of history? 
had you known your fourth great grandfather fought for the North or fought for the South or fought for the um, um, American Revolution. And it would. That's why I'm working with my colleagues on a Finding Your Roots curriculum to try to revolutionize how we teach inner city brown and black kids um, history and science. You know, if we went to a school tomorrow and said, today's lesson is Watson and Crick and the Devil Helix, people say, get out of town. But if you say, with this Q-tip or with this test tube, we're going to spit in it. And in six weeks, we're going to tell you about the layers of your ancestry going back 500 years, what percent Native American you are, what percent African, what per percent European. 4% of the white people in this room are really black. <laughs> Is that accurate? Is that a number? That's a number, 4%. 4% overall of white Americans have enough recent sub-Saharan African DNA legally to be uh, defined as African Americans. So you better be careful where you spit. That's all I'm talking about. <laughs> I have a, a question for anyone, um, which is, um, you know, you, you said uh, it, it, learning through our stories and it changes <clears throat> our perspective about ourselves and you talked about empathy and I guess I would ask all of you, do you think how meaningful can ancestry be in defining what it is to be an American and defining where someone is today in the political spectrum, which is, of course. I mean, I can take that just, you know, from my own background. My mom is from Haiti, right? Uh, and my dad, you know, from Philly and Virginia. Haitians and Caribbean people have a certain uh, understanding of America because of their own understanding of their own identity. They know where they come from to a certain extent. They can go far back or, you know, they've been in this community on this island for X amount of years. There's a certain level of pride and identity. You're Africa, talking about ha Haitians yes, and? Yes, uh, and Caribbean people. Yeah. Who come to America and see it as an opportunity. And yes. I'm not saying African Americans don't see America as an opportunity, but we've been so fractured in our history. When you don't know where you come from, and you can't connect to a level of pride that is direct to who you are as an individual, it gets in the way of a lot of things that you can do. And that is what is so powerful about getting this information. The folks at Ancestry have done some research on my behalf that they're going to share with me at some point. And you know, my father was Horace Byrd Jenkins III. Um, I saw a picture of Horace Byrd I. I'd never, I didn't know, you know, I knew he existed, but I'd never seen him. And the, the bird, the middle name Bird, I'd always heard it was connected to Admiral Bird, and then you told me it's Colonel Bird. So, you know, I, I had the benefit, and it made a difference, that I knew a bit more. Now, I'm from the inner city. Now, there's a rapper named Nas. Have any of you heard of him? Yeah. Totally, sure. All right. I did his family tree for finding room. Okay. So, <laughs> that's right. So, Nas and myself. You know, I, I grew up in the inner city, single mom, and my dad was a filmmaker. He grew up in the inner city, single mom, his dad was a musician. Mm -hmm. His dad was worldly. He had roots in the South, right? We had advantages in our neighborhoods that other kids didn't have. And I'm not the most brilliant kid in my neighborhood, but I had advantages that other kids didn't have. They didn't have a connection to their identity. Mm -hmm. And there are so many kids that I grew up with who can run any Fortune 500 company but they didn't have that opportunity because they didn't know who they were. And me and Nas went to the same junior high school mm -hmm. and they told, they told us both the same thing. You should go to vocational school. Mm -hmm. Now Nas 
He dropped out in the seventh grade. Mm -hmm. I stayed in the eighth grade longer than I should have. <laughs> and there's absolutely nothing wrong with vocational school, right? Vocational school is great. We need people to do that. But what if Nas would have gone to vocational school on the strength of, well, you have no opportunity. There's nothing for you. Where are you going to go? Mm -hmm. When you were growing up, did you sort of say to yourself, I am of Haitian descent, and that's meaningful and different than the kids I'm going to school with, and or I am Southern black, African American, or not? No, I, I said to myself, I, have, I know who I am. I know where my people are on both sides, and they instilled in me a pride and understanding of who I am, and that I shouldn't be ashamed of that. And there's a lot of pride and great things that we've achieved. In America, as a person of color, again, February, bone up on all the great things black people have done. We've done, we've built, we've built this country. How is it that we've built this country, but our, our, our history is not recognized as a part of the overall conversation about American history, uh, and we get a month to sort of express it? Doesn't make any sense. It's weird. And until that changes, it's, we're going to be having the same conversations. Mm. But think about how much history everyone in this room has lear learned in 30 minutes that you didn't know before. That the reason um, black people could, would follow the North Star to Canada is because Canada was a colony of uh, Britain, and Britain freed, uh, ended slavery, abolished slavery in 1834 throughout the Commonwealth. So if you could cross over from uh, Niagara Falls over to Canada, you were free. And that started during the American Revolution. Why? Because the British were trying to beat the Patriots. Mm -hmm. And Lord Dunsmore in 1775 said, if you run away from your master, we will free you instantly. And one of the first people to run away was George Washington's slave, Harry, who <laughs> ran away, was caught, and ran away again. And then when the, the, the British lost the American Revolution, what did the, um, George Washington demanded that the Brits give all these black people who had fled and joined the British to fight the Patriots, to give them back. And the British, to their credit, said no way and resettled them in Nova Scotia. And that's why. Sorry, do you mind? Do you mind say, say that? Is that? Forgive my. I, I know no history, so there you go. I'll ask on behalf of anyone in the room who doesn't know that. That's a fact. That's a fact. There were five thousand black men, including my own fourth great grandfather, who fought for the Patriots in the Continental Army, and there were many more mm -hmm. who ran away and fought for the Brits against um, the Patriots. And when, after 1783, the American Revolution ends. All those black people were settled in Nova Scotia. And some of them, as free people, they started their own newspapers, had their own community. Some of them thought it was too cold. They sent, in 1791, they sent emissaries to the king, King George, and said, it's too cold, Nova Scotia. And, that, and they were settled in Sierra Leone. And these were all people who were formerly slaves in the southern part of the United States. Or what you told, what you told the audience about the Fugitive Slave Law, passed in 1850. There's actual, actually a clause in the American Constitution, but it was brought back with a vengeance in 1850, and it meant that you were breaking the law if you knew that a person was a fugitive and you did not participate in their apprehension to be shipped back uh, to the South. And here's, here's the final thing that was implicit. It wasn't until the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870 that free black men, because remember, only men could vote, that free black men 
could vote in the North, except in the five New England states and the state of New York, if you had $250 in property. So to put it another way, black men could not vote in the free North, except in New England, and except if they had $250 worth of wealth in New York. They were disenfranchised, though they were free. You know, American history is so much more complex in terms of race than simply North and South, good and bad, Confederate and free. So many fortunes in the North are made from cotton, like in Massachusetts, in Lowell, exploiting child labor, Irish, particularly young girls, uh, immigrant children. And, and New York City did not even want New York to, see, uh, to remain in the Union. New York, the, the bankers wanted New York to join the Confederacy because they were making so much money off cotton. So this is the real black history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. I had a question about uh, the Underground Railroad, your church, mm -hmm. how your experience from high school and then a different experience from this. So, so do you think that that has meaning today, meaning the Underground Railroad, which is arguably renegade, right? It's a renegade piece of activity. Yeah. It's now, it's today lauded, generally. Do you think that there's application to the world today or analog yeah. to our yeah. country today? A absolutely. I, first and foremost, money isn't the only thing that matters. That was the case that Plymouth Church was making. Everyone there was growing wealthy from Textiles, where does that cotton come from? Mm -hmm. They were bankers. Uh, where did the farms save their money? They were, uh, there was a huge shipping industry, especially in Brooklyn. Well, what were they moving? Agricultural goods from the South. So they were working against their own economic interest to uh, support this network. And I think that that's a much bigger question that is applicable today. What is the moral value of what you're doing? Uh, the law is the law. What about the law, though? What do you think of the law? I mean, what is the meaning of the law in? In terms of breaking the law in that time? Well, yes. Um, you know, I, my perception of it is in the mid-19th century, really, as it still is now, America was so much forming its identity. And people like Henry Ward Beecher, who could make a lot of noise and bring a lot of attention, had an opportunity to say, we, it, we don't want it to go this way. We want it to go this way. And everyone has that opportunity today, too, to say, we don't want to go this direction. We want to go this direction. And you can make a lot of noise, and you can do something about it. Um, the law is made by the people in this country, and we have to take responsibility for it. Mm -hmm. we, yeah. uh, <laughs> we were... And is there... Yeah, and the, obvi the obvious analog is the elite, quote unquote, illegal immigrants. These um, fugitive slaves were the illegal immigrants, right? That is the connection that we can make right now, which is why we have to stand up against any lunatic who's trying to build a wall <laughs> to keep people out of this, out of this country. The whole leitmotif of finding your roots and tracing your ancestry is, there are two. One, that we're all descended from immigrants, 
even if you were black, we were, un, we, we, we were all from Africa and were dragged over here, so we were unwilling immigrants. And the second thing is through our DNA, no matter what we look like, we're 99.9% .9 the same. And we have to fight anytime these white supremacists talk about racial purity, they are the enemy of the human community and we have to stand up against them firmly and strongly, as strongly as the abolitionists did against their own countrymen. And by the way, Beecher's, Beecher's sister was Harriet Beecher Stowe, the best-selling novelist in the history of the world until the 20th century was Henry Ward Beecher's sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yeah, we were yeah we were talking earlier just about that very thing and taking what you know where you said money's not everything. Not all of us have the amount of money that we want to be able to to uh, bring change to the world, but we do have our sphere of our social sphere, whatever sphere we're in, where we can uh, cause change to happen. And so it's knowing. And I love what Seth said. Uh, Seth, who's the descendant of Lewis Tappan, saying we're not doing enough. And that was what he, he knew he was a descendant of this abolitionist. He had that family history already, uh, but he had such a deeper appreciation for what uh, this man truly sacrificed to cause change to happen. Uh, it doesn't, it's not in the film, but Lewis Tappan's house was burned down in New York City. Oh, really? Looted and burned to the ground, and he moved to Brooklyn because of that. And, mm -hmm. and it was burned because of his belief. Mm -hmm. And so he had a family, he had children, uh, it just is really inspiring to see <coughs> and finding out through story and through these records what people sacrificed and did to cause change to come about. Mm -hmm. You know, I think for me, um, particularly when you talk about the abolitionist movement in general, and, and then in this film, it just came, or not the film, but just from my experience. You know, we're talking about really a matter of humanity. I mean, when you think about some of the stories we talked about where, um, where you had a, an owner that passed on and then his possessions were sold off. And some of those possessions were people, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, and really getting like a visceral experience that of the, you know, I wanna say that, you know, that feeling of just worthlessness or but your worth was what, it, what you would fetch on a, on a market, mm -hmm. you know? And to me, that, that um, the risk was really about standing up for the humanity of another person. It wasn't about civil rights. I don't care if you, can, if you speak to me or if I can patronize your shop, but do you see my humanity? Mm -hmm. Do you see the humanity of another person? Mm -hmm. Because to me, that speaks more um, to really the character you know, of, of any one person who felt like it doesn't matter what my station in life is, if I'm gonna look at a person and not see, you know, the humanity of them, then that's a more of an abomination. What, what is that, you know? And, and then in my experience traveling, because, mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, this experience has helped me understand a lot more even about my family, so my family uh, Cecilia mentioned this, you know, being tight knit. Well, nobody travels, you know. Like I want, I wanted to go away to college, and it was like, where are you going? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I want to study abroad. <laughs> What's that? How would you do that? You know, like why, why would you go anywhere? But now the story makes so much sense because, you know, John and Arabella Wings. What did they go through to find their these ten 
children that were, you know, sold off and, you know, and, and so you can imagine down the generations, like, don't, don't be going, don't be going anywhere, <laughs> you know, stay right here. Yeah. But, but you can't just stay right there, you know, because it's bigger than that. Mm. And, and I know for myself, I was the one that's like, hey, it's big, I gotta get out of it. We gotta, there's more, you know, there's more to that. So. But this matter of demeaning the, humani the humanity of people of African descent, that is the reason that every government since Thomas Jefferson has tried to undermine the heroism of the Haitian people. I made a documentary, one of my favorite documentaries is about the history of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Most Americans don't even know they're on the same island. But the Haitians were the only group of slaves in history that rose up against their masters and defeated them. And on January 1st, 1804, Haiti became the first black republic in the history of the world. And the reason that Napoleon sold Thomas Jefferson, Louisiana, was that trying to defeat the Haitians had basically bankrupted France. They needed $15 million to fight other wars in Europe. And so he said, hey, Jefferson, let's make a deal. And then they spread lies about the nature of the Haitian people, demean them in the same way they did our ancestors under Reconstruction that the Haitians weren't intelligent enough to run their own country, they were too stupid, they worshiped um, you know, satanic forces, uh, et cetera, et, et, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can understand the power of retelling these stories and for you to be able to trace your ancestry back to an independent repu black republic in 1804. Mm. No black person can do that. Right, I mean, I, I knew my ancestors defeated Napoleon. Um, <laughs> but a, 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 a white man that the white men can't even defeat. Can, can How they do with baby doc. Right. <laughs> but it also should be noted, and it's debatable, maybe we can debate, in the Dominican Republic there was a slave uprising where there was some success. It doesn't have the same sort of gravitas as what happened in Haiti, mm -hmm. but it should be noted that there was something similar in the Dominican Republic that happened, and that that island has obviously, as uh, Professor Gates has said, has had a really heavy hand in the history of America, and that is not being told. Yeah. Why? Why is that? But why do when you, you have a president who refers to a place like Haiti as a shithole right. country, mm -hmm. why? Mm -hmm. well, what do you think, why? Because I don't know much about Haiti, but I know Aristide was buddies with, right when he was in power with, a little bit buddies with Clinton, wasn't he? And there was great empathy. He followed Baby Doc. Do I have it straight? Three letters, CIA. And let me, let me add something, because this is interesting. Um, I was talking about just our family being so tight. But Mary Weems actually married uh, James Allison Savoy, who's, who was from Haiti. His people came through Haiti, uh -huh. from a Indian through Haiti and then into the U.S. And I can so see there's a connection. I, I say you yeah, look like I one of my you. relatives. Yeah. <laughs> on the Haitian side yeah. and on the Jenkins side. Right. And, well, we all read uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. So many of you read The Souls of Black Folk. He's half Haitian. His father was Haitian, Alfred uh, Du Bois. So the, and Haiti is so close. You said a three-letter word. There's another reason, five-letter word, S-U-G-A-R. Sugar was the great world commodity. Haiti, which wasn't called Haiti until the, the black people defeated um, uh, the French, was the richest colony in the history mm -hmm. of the world because of sugar. Before Haiti, only wealthy people could put sugar in their tea. 
right? It was such a rare commodity until the new world opened up, which is what was worth fighting over. And to their astonishment, they were, uh, they were defeated by these African people in, in the new world. That's a film. Toussaint Louverture, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, beating the greatest army in the world, Napoleon's army. Shit, there should be movies about that a Sundance. <laughs> I think we have time just for a couple more questions or comments. And I guess I'm not sure I have anything central to ask, so maybe I can see if there's anyone here who has been burning. Yes. You might want to speak up. It's just tough to hear in the back. Hello, hello. Hey, All right, we good, we good. Um, I was just wondering, I'm a student at the University of Illinois, I'm wondering how do I normalize ancestry DNA on a campus where it's like 4% black people, but there's 42,000 students there. Um, I had the opportunity to do ancestry DNA testing and go to Ghana and do a self-identity trip and do research on reunification or whatever, but it was only 10 of us. They were able to do that. Um, so I'm just wondering, how do I go to my peers and tell them about the importance of um, self-identity and ancestry DNA? Yeah, I think uh, first, and I'm really glad you took the ancestry DNA test, and that's one way to begin that journey on, on finding out your family history. But I think the first thing we need to help people understand is it starts with you and what you know. And you start with what you know, and you start building that family tree. And Ancestry is not just DNA. We have billions of records online. We're the largest uh, online uh, family history company in the world. And that's where those stories come to play. DNA can tell you where you come from, but, but the family history stories and records tell you who those people were and gives you those stories like we, like we shared with Gail and, and those at the church. And uh, diving into those records and figuring out how to put those pieces to, of the puzzle together, that's where the magic happens. And uh, there's educational, uh, we have educational subscriptions all over universities all over the, the country. Uh, we can go on Ancestry for free and college campuses, uh, or you could subscribe yourself for your house. But um, I think that's a wonderful way to get people to get started, is starting with what you know. Get it, get it down on paper. Talk to those older generations. I think we sometimes dismiss that. We dismiss, uh, you know, oh, my grandma, she's told the same story 20 times. Give her a prompt. Say, Grandma, what do you remember about shoes? Tell me about shoes. And my grandmother told me, oh, I remember my first pair of shoes my mom bought me. And then the narration starts happening. Then the story starts happening. And get that and put that on Ancestry digitally so you can share it with your whole family. Mm. Thank you. Yeah? Yes. You might need a mic, I'm sorry. Hello, my name is Azria. Thank you guys so much. What an incredible film. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, my question is for Sasha regarding what you said really resonated with me about it's time for us to all sort of claim responsibility for our collective history and not say, well, that's your guys' thing and this is our thing. My question for you is, what is a tangible way in which we can do that, other than just the awareness and the internal process of saying, okay, I choose that, but is there a tangible action that we can take to actually share that or spread that? Well, I mean, this film is a perfect example of, you know, a guy who identified as white his entire life, who comes away learning that now his history is way more broad than he anticipated. Now, who, I don't know what his politics were, how he felt about Black Lives Matter or, or anything. Oscar's so white, I don't know what he was thinking about that. <laughs> but imagine what he thinks about that now, right? So it's, it's, it's about conversation, you know? I mean, one of the biggest problems is we're so separated, you know? If you, 
Like I, I was on another panel today. I was explaining that it, it's about uh, it was about inclusion in Hollywood. And I explained growing up, I didn't know that white people were poor, based on television, the Waltons. I knew that was a long time ago. But all the images that I saw on television saw showed me that white people were doing okay. That's all I knew. I was an inner city kid, you know. So. Our lives have to expand, our, our, our network has to expand, people need to have conversations, but we need to have honest conversations about history and it can't keep getting put in this African-American box. It's American history. Mm -hmm. Until we acknowledge that, what is gonna change? Then it's like, okay, um, the, the police are abusing black men or black boys, right? How come we're not saying the police are abusing American boys, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because if you, you know, you, you know, I can say whatever I want, like, I like oh, that. you know, Billy, he's a white police officer. He's nicer to, you know, a white kid or, or something. But, like, it's all segmented. It's segregated. It's separate. It's like it is American. That black boy who's being beaten is not just a black boy. He's an American. And all Americans should be outraged. Mm -hmm. And until we're all outraged, we all recognize each other as Americans, and that's what you know, you learn today from watching this film. Until we do that, that's what we need to do. Sasha, may I say something about that? The most profound part of this experience for me, uh, the day that Lisa, Sasha, and the families visited the church, I felt so humbled because I'm someone who's curious about history. Um, I'm interested. I go places. I read things. And I suddenly realized how much I did not know like, there is a broad spectrum of American history that's been put on mute, and either we don't want to talk about it or retold a different way. And so I think for some place like Sundance, where people are in the business of telling stories to big audiences, mm -hmm. uh, I think we have a real responsibility to tell the stories of the people who make up our country and to not pretend that it's just one group of people and some other people along for the ride. Mm -hmm. Well said. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna take that final beautiful closing moment and <laughs> thank all of the panelists. Yeah. And... <laughs> and also thank everybody here. Thank you all. Thank you for Ancestry and Sasha. Thank you for making a beautiful movie.